Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. My guest today is Ashok Srivastava. He is Senior Vice President and Chief Data Officer at Intuit. He has a really strong science and engineering background, but he has combined it with years of applying machine learning and data science in industry. Prior to joining Intuit, he led teams responsible for data science and AI products at Verizon. I wanted his perspective on a range of issues, including the role of the chief data officer, ethics and machine learnings, and the emergence of AI technologies for enterprise products and applications. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Ashok Srivastava, Senior Vice President and Chief Data Officer at Intuit. Welcome to the Data Show. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. So judging from your, uh, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile, but judging from your Twitter handle, you have, still have an affinity for aerospace. So as a way of introduction, let's talk a little bit about your uh, background uh, uh, prior to joining Intuit. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It's great. Um, I do have a background in aerospace. In fact, uh, before coming to Intuit, I was at NASA. And while I was at NASA, I worked on a number of areas in aerospace. Uh, it focused on aviation safety, so helping commercial airliners become more safe. But we also worked on spacecraft, other deep space um, types of exploration missions. Some of my team members worked on those areas, as well as in the sciences. So I had a broad exposure to that. I was also a chief editor-in-chief of one of the uh, journals for AIAA, which is the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. And I should clarify that I was at NASA two jobs ago. Before, Immediately before coming to Intuit, I was at Verizon. I was their chief data scientist and also had some activities going on in the aerospace area there. So for the people new to data science, I do recall that in the uh, late 90s or and in the aughts, uh, aerospace was a source of the early data scientists, right? Uh, I think actually uh, back then, maybe people used to refer to it even before machine learning, data mining and knowledge discovery, right? So so how, how do you think uh, the whole field has evolved since uh, you were at NASA in terms of uh, just awareness and uh, kind of the use of data? Oh, it has been such an amazing experience to watch things even starting before that in the world of data warehousing. So when people started to say, let's bring the data together and analyze it through query-based systems, and then the idea that you could analyze it through OLAP, online analytical processing, build visualizations on top of that, that was a whole era unto itself. But what we started to see back at the time that you're describing in the late 90s, early 2000s, is that people started to apply algorithms to uncover knowledge from the data. And this was the whole explosion of data mining. And so the KDD conference started at that time. Many other major conferences started at that time where people said that the algorithms can unlock potential value in the data. It was extremely exciting to see that. And now what we're seeing is a push towards automation. 
And as we see that push towards automation, we find that machine learning is really playing a critical role there because it can, as we know, learn and adapt from the changing data environment. So from your from your perspective as an industry veteran, as far as the uh, some of the algorithms that we're using today, how much different are they from the ones when uh, when you were starting out? You know, um, obviously there are many things that are similar. So the standards of logistic regression, anomaly detection methods, support vector machines. I think all of these things are quite standard and they've been used for for many many years now. But what we have seen in the past. Uh, let's say, eight to 10 years, is a resurgence of interest in neural networks. And frankly, my uh, training and background is in neural networks. Backpropagation is Single-layer perceptrons. Absolutely, <laughs> single-layer perceptrons. What more do you need, right? That's what we thought at the time. But what the amazing innovations are is really in the field of deep learning, where people say that these MLPs can actually be expanded, not to one or two or, or five layers, but to 23 layers or even deeper networks. And thinking about how to train those networks to solve complex problems. So we've seen a complete transformation in the field of computer vision because, for instance, of these capabilities. Some remarkable uh, techniques merging text analysis as well as computer vision in order to do uh, automatic captioning of pictures and so forth. These are some of the classic uh, depictions of what's happened in machine learning recently. And back then, so I, I come from a more math background. I used to be a math academic and stats academic. In my case, my exit strategy was Wall Street. So I went, went to finance. But you're an actual rocket scientist, right? So nowadays, I think many of the people who get PhDs are, are more drawn to kind of working in industrial data science. So how, what's your advice to people coming from academia who want to tackle industrial data science problems? First, I would look and understand the areas where you feel passionate, where you think that you can make a difference, whether it be in finance, whether it be in manufacturing, retail, whatever. The world is big and it's broad and there are so many areas that data plays a key role. And wherever you feel that passion, start to look and see what the key problems are that need to be addressed. And it's quite likely that you'll see that data science, machine learning, and related techniques can play a critical role there. And I say that with a lot of confidence because as I've gone through the journey over the past 20 years working in different fields, I also worked in, in finance a little bit here in It's Wall a tougher Street. field than most people it is. think. Yeah. And it's extremely exciting to work in that field and to see how machine learning can play a critical role there. But in healthcare also, in understanding scientific problems, for instance, understanding how the brain works, understanding cosmology, astrophysics, earth sciences, space sciences. All of these areas can benefit through the analysis of data because the fact is, in my opinion, that the bedrock of the human civilization is the scientific principle. And what's one of the key elements of the scientific principle? It's the gathering and understanding of data. And that's what we're talking about here just at a massive scale. Yeah, and uh, actually right now, uh, I don't know how you feel, but it seems like we're in a very empirical era for machine learning, right? So as you alluded to, we have deep learning, but there's a lot about deep learning that we don't quite understand, right? So there's a lot of uh, tricks of the trade and uh, and things that you only learn by apprenticing from uh, uh, someone. So uh, how does someone pick up some of these tricks of the trade quickly from uh, if you're giving someone advice? By experimenting with data directly and with algorithms directly. 
there's nothing like working with the data sets and actually working with data sets over a long period of time so you have experience with them and then also applying algorithms. I still do that myself um, because I find that it helps me not only understand the underlying algorithms and the trade-offs that you make, but it also helps you keep track of what is really innovative and what is incremental in terms of the work that's going on in the research and development space in machine learning. So you're, one of your uh, titles is Chief Data Officer. So um, describe what a Chief Data Officer at, at your company does and what you think kind of the public perception of what the Chief Data Officer is. Is there a difference between the two? A Chief Data Officer, in my opinion, is a person who thinks about the end-to-end process of obtaining data, governing that data, and transforming that data for a useful purpose. So his or her purview is relatively large, and I view my purview at Intuit to be exactly that, thinking about the entire data pipeline, proper stewardship, proper governance principles, and proper application of that data. I think that as uh, the public learns more about the opportunities that can come from data, I think there's a lot of excitement about the potential value that can be unlocked from it from the consumer standpoint. And also many businesses and scientific organizations are excited about the same thing. And I think the CDO plays a role as a catalyst in making those things happen with the right principles applied. So why, why do we need a separate role apart from the chief information officer thing? Well, I would say that if you look at back into history a little bit, you'll find that the need for the chief data officer started to come into play when people saw a huge amount of data coming in at high speeds with high variety and variability, but then also the opportunity to marry that data with real algorithms that can have a transformational property to them. And while it's true that CIOs, CTOs, uh, people who are in lines of business can and should think about this. It's a complex enough process that I think it merits having a person and an organization think about that end-to-end pipeline. One of the things that I've found over the years is that the real value behind data is unlocked if you think about things from an end-to-end standpoint. It's very, very fun for those of us who enjoy math and statistics and computer science to think just about the internal workings of the specific machine learning algorithm. Personally, I love that sort of thing. But the fact is that the value is only incrementally unlocked there. You have to think about the end-to-end pipeline. And so that's where a CDO and an organization affiliated with a CDO, I think, can play a critical role. And by the way, uh, one of my pet peeves is uh, press coverage is focused on that little part, right? So they ignore the fact that uh, uh, there is this end-to-end pipeline that's complex and and uh, in many ways, that's where that's what separates the the companies who are good with data from the ones who are just average. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It's the end-to-end thinking that you know, regardless of whether you're working in aerospace, manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, e-commerce, it's that end-to-end thinking that really drives uh, benefit and something that I encourage my teams and my collaborators to think about because we each look at it from a different standpoint. And it's the sum total of our viewpoints that really helps unlock the value. No one person or no one organization, in my opinion, 
can really do that. Everyone needs to work together to get it done. So uh, I wanted to give you a chance to pitch into it as a place to work for uh, data scientists and data engineers. So what's exciting about AI, ML, and data at Intuit? For people who are out there who are interested in thinking about ways to help drive prosperity around the world, there's no better place to work than Intuit. And I would say that that's a statement that is far broader than just AI and machine learning. For those people who want to apply AI and machine learning to help drive prosperity, there's no better place. And here's the reason why. We have some of the best data in the world about how people actually interact with big platforms, with big systems, in terms of their finances and in terms of their economic output. We also have some of the most cutting-edge technologies available to us to use that data under the right privacy and governance principles to use that data in order to unlock the potential. And we also have some of the largest platforms that are used by tens of millions of Americans and people worldwide in order to get that information to them. So for people who are interested in the application of machine learning in the finance spectrum, this is one of the best places. For people who are interested in doing research and development on those algorithms themselves, that part that we were talking about, this is also a great place because we're making investments in building fundamentally new algorithms and approaches to understand this type of data. So uh, if I locate Intuit in, in the financial services space, so are we talking about things like uh, fraud detection? What else? Forecasting? So what, what kinds of uh, things uh, should uh, people look forward to if they, if they join the team? Yeah. So um, certainly fraud detection and uh, anomaly detection, all of these areas. But I'll actually start at a higher level. So um, the first area, we want to build smart products. And what smart products means is if you think of any of the products that Intuit has, whether it be Mint or TurboTax or QuickBooks or any of their other products that we have, we want to infuse those products and make them smarter with the use of AI and machine learning. Second, we want to build systems that can do what we call customer care or customer success more effectively so that we help customers get the answers that they need quickly and efficiently. Third, an area that we're focusing on is security, risk, and fraud. So building platforms and capabilities using machine learning and artificial intelligence to secure the data, secure the customer's information, to understand risk and to prevent fraud. Another area that we're working in that uh, we're starting to roll out now is what we call engineering optimization. So if you think about it, the company operates very large platforms with very significant and complex software in it. And one of the key things that's of great interest to us is whether or not we can build software that is more robust using machine learning techniques. This is a new area of work for us and also for many people outside of the company. Very exciting for people who are interested in the combination of systems and machine learning. Another area that we're focusing on is what we call central services to the company. So using the machine learning techniques in areas like finance, in areas, and when I say finance, I mean finance for Intuit or areas such as HR or uh, other related places. You know, tying back to what you said earlier around automation, one of the things I've observed uh, with regards to automation, and this is something that uh, uh, one of our honorary program chairs, Peter Norvig, who you might know, is very interested in, is precisely what you mentioned, which is uh, 
one of the areas where automation is manifesting itself is around data science and software engineering. And I always explain it to people as uh, engineers are kind of lazy. So the first thing they'll try to do is automate uh, whatever it is that they're doing. So what kinds of things do you want to see come out of the AI and ML community over the next few years that uh, might help someone like you in a leadership position in industry? So what kinds of breakthroughs are you looking forward to? Well, I'm going to actually tie it back to a comment that you just made about software engineering. So if you look at the world at large, we are completely driven by software innovation, right? And this is not a statement that's unique to Intuit. Software Most, is eating the world. <laughs> that's right. Software is behind a lot of innovation in the world. We have critical systems, safety critical systems and other systems operating around that are based on software. One of the things that I'm looking for is methods to use AI and machine learning to build what we call software verification validation systems. And so VNV, verification validation of software, is actually a term of reference used in software engineering, often used in the aerospace industry. That's where I picked it up. And the idea that we are building these massive systems based on code and that it's very hard to understand what that code does in a high dimensional state. I mean, some of these papers, to be honest, are even hard to reproduce. You change the random seed a little bit, behaves completely different. Absolutely. And that uh, sensitivity to initial conditions, uh, the kind of issues that can come up if you have very complex software systems where they're interacting at different asynchronous times at different speeds and so forth, these are hard problems that need to be addressed. And I really feel that one of the key areas of innovation that we're looking for in machine learning is to start using these types of techniques to address problems in software VNB. Now, frankly, and admittedly, that is pretty down in the weeds, but I wanted to tie it to one of the questions that uh, and the comments that we were making earlier. At a higher level, I think that we're looking for innovations in machine learning that can take multivariate data sources. So from multiple standpoints, structured and unstructured data, obviously, images, video data, fuse this data together in order to solve complex problems like building a conversational system that can take data from not only text-based, uh, yeah, multimodal data sets. This is one of the key problems that we're looking at. Building explainable AI is another area that we're looking at. Another area that we're quite particularly important in financial services. Absolutely. Which just seems to be the canonical example everyone cites for explainable AI. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, because if you're making a loan judgment, for instance, you have to be able to explain why that's being done. You have to be able to investigate and interrogate the system that made that particular recommendation. This is an important area of work for us. Another important area of work for us is in building predictive models that have confidence intervals associated with them. As Error a math- bars. Yeah. As a, as a mathematician, statistician, you know that some models lend themselves very well to depicting error bars, but others don't. And we're trying to build explainable AI, but also models that can explain confidence intervals conditioned on the inputs that they're getting. And so this is another area of exciting work for us in many more places that we're thinking about that we also think the community is pursuing. So I'm going to go a little geeky. Uh, A good friend of mine, Ben Reck at uh, UC Berkeley, has been writing a bunch of papers on reinforcement learning. Basically, one of his uh, 
themes is, you know, there's a lot of excitement around reinforcement learning because of deep reinforcement learning, but uh, he's trying to tie reinforcement learning back to ideas in optimal control and dynamical systems because he feels like uh, the deep reinforcement learning stuff is interesting, but they're hard to reproduce, whereas some of these techniques require a little more knowledge and structure. But hey, we, we use them to fly planes. They're well understood. You know, We're not going to use deep reinforcement learning to fly things up in the sky until we figure out how they work. This is a great point. I'm so happy that you're bringing it up. So there's such a huge push these days to go to non-parametric models, and understandably so. But the fact is that if you have the ability to write a model, you should write that model and use that model and exploit it to the best degree possible. Because then a lot of the fabric of optimal control of physics, for instance, um, things that are well-established can come into play. And there's tremendous power and frankly, tremendous beauty and elegance in doing things like that. One of the things I really loved in my work at NASA was the fact that we were dealing with data generating processes that had physics as the fundamental process behind it. And because of that, you were able to build machine learning algorithms that could incorporate and understand physics and use that information in order to guide the predictions. We made some headway in that direction. Certainly, we didn't solve the problem by any means, but it's a very exciting way to think about the world. Now, in the world that you were speaking about earlier in Wall Street, it's difficult to write down strong physics-based models, quote-unquote, strong differential equations that describe the evolution of the stock market. But, but traders still want to understand at some level yes. what, what is this doing. Yes. And so thinking about how to build parametric and non-parametric models in those contexts, I think is a very, very exciting area. Something that I think we would like to pursue it into it at some point in the future. So you alluded to earlier about explainable AI, which fits in this kind of uh, growing interest among uh, data professionals and data scientists on topics pertaining to ethics and privacy, right? So you're the CDO at in, into it. Are you starting to have some sort of workshops or internal training programs around ethics? And if so, what what kinds of things are you teaching people? So we're actually right now in the process of launching a unified training program in data science, which includes this as well as many other technical topics. And I should say that I joined Intuit about six months ago. They already had training programs happening worldwide in the area of data science and acquainting people with the principles necessary to, to use the data properly, as well as the technical aspects of doing it. I really feel this is a critical area for those of us who work in the field to think about and to be advocates of proper use of data, proper use of privacy information and, and security in order to make sure that the data that we're stewards of is used in the best possible way for the end consumer. So I think this is an important area, certainly something we're focused on at Intuit, but I know that many companies outside of Intuit are focused in similar areas. So one thing that uh, uh, about ethics that I'd like to point out is one, uh, it can actually be an interesting topic to, uh, from a technical perspective too when you start looking at things like uh, bias, right? So can I measure if this model is biased in any way? But also, it it's ethics. There's no comprehensive checklist. But you can have some kind of uh, best practices that you can teach people. And one of the things that 
I'm looking forward to more people doing is. I think right now the awareness is good and high because a lot of people give talks about this is what happened, this is what happened, this this is what went wrong, right? But not so much about okay, so that's great, but what do I do about it? How do I prevent that from happening? So I'm looking forward to what you guys come up with in terms of uh, uh, in terms of internal training. And then as far as privacy, GDPR is the big thing. And embedded inside GDPR is this uh, initiative for what they call privacy by design, which actually cha will change how we all build data products, I think, even though it's a, a focus entirely in Europe. What do you think? Oh, I think that um, the innovations that are happening due to GDPR are going to be far-reaching. This is something that I'm seeing in my previous positions as well as in the current position. And what I feel is that a critical aspect of this is to maintain visibility and explainability about the work that we're doing. Because if you're interested in ethics, it's not, as you said, just a checklist that you have to go through. It requires multiple people with multiple standpoints and viewpoints to take a look at it. You know, there's a very common saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And what does that mean in this context? It means that many people need to look at it and understand the implications of actions that are being taken and then choose the best strategy in order to ensure privacy or compliance or whatever the key aspect is. Something that I feel very strongly about, not only in the role that I have, but also as a consumer and as a user of all of these tools, I want to know that people are doing that and thinking about it. And I think actually this uh, uh, growing interest in privacy and user control will affect how we build analytics, right? So for example, there's already tools for doing differential business intelligence that preserve differential privacy. There's federated learning that kind of allows you to do deep learning without sharing data. Um, so what do you think about in my mind, they're inherently in interesting technical topics too, not just... Uh, uh... Absolutely. To give you an idea, back at NASA, so now this is many years ago, we started looking at issues of differential privacy and other types of privacy concerns. And the key issue of analyzing data in a context where data cannot, for privacy reasons, be siloed together and brought together into a central warehouse. So the application that we were thinking about were, was in the airline industry where we had built a system that allows for data from multiple carriers, so United, Delta, these types of carriers, having their data, but making sure that data is never brought together in a single repository. So how do you do anomaly detection? How do you do prediction problems in that context? Well, that actually drove us to work and collaborate with a uh, professor at Stanford uh, named Stephen Boyd, who is one of the one of the top authorities. Convex optimization. Convex optimization. <laughs> yep, he wrote the book on it, and this led to a regermination of interest in ADMM. So ADMM is uh, stands for Alternating Direction Method of Multipliers. It's essentially a way of doing optimization across a very broad spectrum of data, where you don't need to actually bring the data together. Now, to the point that you were making earlier, ADMM is a parametric model, right? You build a model and you say that this model is what we're going to use. Therein lies the power of it. You can expand it in certain ways, but essentially it allows us to do that kind of optimization very fast at scale while maintaining privacy. And that was actually the germination of a lot of work that we did in that field 
We built algorithms and so forth that respected privacy using those types of techniques. So again, uh, you're an industry veteran. You've probably uh, lived through one or two AI winters. So in my mind, I think right now, the way people talk about AI, they, they kind of equate AI with only ML. But looking at the way you describe what you folks do, I think is more kind of close to what true uh, AI is, which is AI will have multiple components. There's going to be obviously a machine learning component. Maybe that, that's the perception, but there's a body of knowledge and then there's automated reasoning. And depending on the application, you may actually even have a simulation backend, a platform to do simulation, right? So how do you describe AI to uh, a civilian audience? I, to your board of directors. Yeah, I <laughs> actually have given uh, talks like this many times internally and into it. And I describe it as follows, that these are overlapping circles. So yeah, there's a hybrid. It's yeah. going to be a hybrid system. Absolutely. So uh, you can think about two overlapping circles. One circle is really an AI circle. The other is a machine learning circle. And many people think that that intersection is the totality of it. But in fact, it isn't. And Right as, now, to be honest, the AI is deep learning, right? So the way right. it's written up. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's remarkable. I mean, I'm finding that this idea about AI needs to be bounded a little bit. So I often say that it's a reasonable technology with unreasonable expectations associated with it. And I really feel this way, that people, for whatever reason, have decided that uh, deep learning is going to solve many problems. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. But frankly, there's a lot of evidence also to support the fact that much more work has to be done before these things become general purpose quote, AI solutions. And um, that's where a lot of exciting innovation is going to happen in the next coming years. And some people who are starting to use uh, deep learning, but don't necessarily come from uh, the deep learning uh, world. So for example, people in uh, natural language, right? So they, they admit the fact that, hey, if I have a lot of data, this stuff works. But the things that we end up building, the learners that we get, they're not the most efficient learners, right? So human beings can learn with fewer examples, right? So, But right now we're in this world where uh, if you have a lot of data, of course, you're, you'll use deep learning, but uh, not every problem has a lot of data. So anyway, so I wanted to thank you for your time and, uh, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can follow Ashok Srivastava on Twitter at AeroTrekker. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.